Greetings, folks, and welcome to another episode of the Lessons from the Cockpit podcast. I am your host, Mark Hacera, and for over 24 years, I was an Air Force pilot flying the KC-135 all over the world, passing gas. Ever since I was five years old, standing on the hood of my Grandpa Andy's car, watching airplanes land at Los Angeles International Airport, my passion has been everything aviation. On the Lessons from the Cockpit show, we interview some of the most fascinating and intriguing pilots, aircrew members, maintainers, and aviation enthusiasts from all over the world. Our purpose is to hear these extreme and extraordinary stories that these people have, but more importantly, what did they learn from it? What are their lessons learned that we can apply not only to aviation, but to our own lives? This discussion gives our listeners a better understanding of how does the aviation world work and increases critical thinking skills both in the air and on the ground. But most importantly, it gives our veterans an opportunity to really share some of these incredible stories. And folks, I'm really excited about today's episode because you're going to hear an incredible story about a very secret program that was run here in the United States. This episode is brought to you by Wall Pilot, custom aviation art for the walls of your home, office, or hangar. But a lot of people just frame them and leave them that way too. 126 ready-to-print items are found at wallpilot.com, but we also do custom aviation art also with your name, unit, tail number, and even the weapons load you want on any particular aircraft or helicopter for that matter. Some of the stories you hear on our show are being told for the very first time. And today, folks, we're going to hear from Z-Man, who was an American MiG pilot, the Red Eagles, flying MiGs out of Area 51. So, grab an adult beverage of your choice, sit down, strap in, and let's talk to Z-Man about flying fighters and MiGs. Rob Zettel, Z-Man, how are you today in Scotland, of all places? Hey, I'm doing good, Sluggo. Glad to be here. Hey, it's great to have you on. You and I don't go back very far like a lot of my other buds, but you were one of Wallpilot's very first customers, and you basically wallpapered your hangar with our products, man. And they look great. They look great. They do, and there isn't a day that goes by when that hangar door is open that there are at least one or two people that come by and just look at that wall and they go, what the f-? <laughs> <laughs> And you know what? It was great doing that stuff for you because you have had an incredible career, not only in the military and adversary tactics, but you went on to fly with American Airlines, uh, excuse me, United, United Airlines. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) That's the wife's airline. Got it wrong. Sorry. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background, particularly how did you ever get interested in flying in the first place? All right. Uh, it's it's going to be a long story, but I'll try to encapsulate as quick yeah. as I can. Uh, came from a family, you know, uh, raised in southeastern Wisconsin. Came a family, no one, no, none of my family or even relatives had ever, ever flown. In fact, I had never even been on an airplane to the, until the day I left to go to college. But back in high school, I remember distinctly at the end of my junior year, and this is kind of germane to the story, before the, the the semester let out for the summer vacation at the end of the junior year, we were all, it was a large high school, it was about 800 kids in my, my class. We all had to go through and talk to a guidance counselor. And the whole idea behind it is they would ask, well, what do you want to do a year from now when you graduate from, 
from high school. And so I went to this gentleman's office and I knew him. He had been his assistant coach on the swim team, stuff like that. And he asked, okay, Rob, what do you want to do? And I said, well, you know, I think I'll go to college. He says, yeah, I get that. But beyond college, what do you want to do career wise? Well, I'm not even 17. I hadn't even really thought that far. And I had never even been on an airplane, but I'd done a lot of reading. I was interested. I'd see the airplanes flying over all the time, going from O'Hare to Milwaukee when I was out driving tractors in my you know, my farmer's neighbor's fields who I work for. And I go, man, if driving a, a big diesel is pretty cool. I bet flying something like that would be awesome. And that's really how it came. And so I told him, I go, well, you know what? Uh, I think I like to be a pilot. And so he says, well, and the hard questions came like, well, what kind of pilot? And I didn't know, but I, and I, I just know that I didn't really have any money. And I, but I did know that the military would train you to be a pilot, but that's all I knew. And he says, well, what kind? I go, I don't know, Air Force, Navy. He goes, well, I was basically your B student. I was, uh, I did, you know, I wasn't burning up the course, but I was, you know, solid, but I wouldn't burn out. I wasn't going to get into the Naval Academy, Air Force Academy. And he was thinking that I would have to do that to get there. He, and he says, you know what? You're probably not going to get into either one of those. So, you know, why don't you think of like something else to do? Because even if you would, you know, washout rates are this. So, Real quickly, after about 15 minutes, I, you know, exited the room. I, I still remember the direction, the day, the sunlight, walking down the hall, thinking, okay, well, now what am I going to do? And I remember <laughs> walk home. My, I lived only about a half a mile, walked home, and I didn't think too much about it. Of course, not even 17 yet. And back then, you just kind of throw something away, and you move on. You think about something, you know, down the line. Well, about two months later, middle summer. My older brother, Mark, he's about a year and a half older than me. He's getting ready to be a freshman at University of Notre Dame. He gets this big package in the mail from the RLTC department at Notre Dame. And of course, he looks at it. I didn't open it up because it wasn't addressed to me. He looks at it and he literally throws it in the kitchen garbage can. <laughs> I go, what was what was that? And had I not been there, this opportunity may never we you and I may never be talking. Isn't that amazing? But he says, I don't know, some 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 crazy crap about the Air Force. I go, Air Force. So I opened it up and up drops all this literature on Air Force ROTC. All these nice shiny pamphlets, neat pictures of wings, T-38s, phantoms, you name it. I'm going. So I looked through it real quickly. I asked him, I go, okay, am I reading this right? If I if I go to school and I enter an ROTC program wherever I want to and I graduate, they will send me to pilot training, assuming I meet their qualifications. He looked at it and he goes, yeah, that's what it says. I said, okay, I'm going to sign up. He goes, all right, knock yourself out. So <laughs> back then, of course, there was no, you know, had those little cards you had to kind of pull out, you know. And yeah. So I filled out this little postcard, put it in the mail and went down to Air University down there Maxwell. And, you know, I forgot about it. Well, about four months later, December of, uh, this was 71, I get this letter in the mail from Air Force ROTC. It says, hey, if you want to do this, we got a date for you. You have to go up to K.I. Sawyer Air Force Base in Marquette, Michigan, and the middle <laughs> middle of winter, oh, and geez. you go there, do your AFOQT, and get a, you know, flight qualified physical so I looked at it and I didn't know where it was on the map. I had to look it up. So it was about, you know, about a four or five hour bus ride from where I lived. So off I went two months later, I go, okay, I'm going to go. So I took off. My mom helped me pack my bag and off I went. I showed up at this, wherever they dropped me off, the you know, bus dropped me off at some hotel up there. Yeah. And I had been given a number anyway. So that's how it started. I won't bore you with all the details, but 
uh, I applied. I actually was selected to be an alternate for our Air Force four-year scholarship. I uh, went to the University of Minnea, uh, University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. I showed up there, had long hair. Second day there, cut it off, joined ROTC. Four or five months later, at the end of the first semester, the professor called me in, the lieutenant colonel, and says, hey, Rob, got some good news. You know, uh, X number of people have dropped out of the program, so we're going to offer you a three-and-a-half-year scholarship for Air Force ROTC. I said, I'll take it. So I signed up. The rest is history. Graduated uh, on time. I uh, had a little bit of delay due to a delayed accessions program in the Air Force and uh, got on duty in uh, April of actually March of 77 and uh, graduated pilot training out of Vance in, seven in uh, March of 78. So that's how it worked. Enid and, by um, the sea. I went to Vance. Enid, Enid by the sea, uh, 7804. And uh, I'm sure my my brothers, maybe not my mom, but I'm sure my brothers who uh, uh, came out for my uh, ceremony getting my wings, they were probably dumbfounded to find out that I had not only gone to pilot training, but somehow I finished top of the class and came home with, you know, distinguished graduate, flying training, flying awards, you name it. And I got the top assignment. So And you'd I never flown before? Never, never. Well, I mean, I I did n- not till I went to college when yeah. I was in Air Force ROTC. Uh, uh, their, the ROTC department had that uh, what they called it. it was actually kind of, I guess, a screening program in yeah. your senior yeah. year. They would put you through that 25 hour yeah. flight instruction program to find out if you actually had the aptitude to do it. And so I went through that, sailed through that. And but I didn't, you know, and I'm get, I ended up getting my private license after that because you already had 25 hours. I think you needed 40. I think I might have had. I think I looked at my logbook not too long ago. I think I got my private license. I might have had 42 and a half, maybe 43 hours. But by the time I showed up for pilot training, you know, uh, eight or 10 months later, I probably didn't have more than 60 or 80. Well, probably, I think around 80 hours. So not a lot. How much do you have now? Well, uh, yeah, I got pushing 20,000, but you know, (laughs) when I was when you know, when I was in the Air Force, a lot of those sorties and F5s, MIGs, and everything else was uh, a point five, some point fours, and uh, a lot of under an hour. So uh, thousands of sorties, but not a lot of hours there. Not like yeah. you tanker guys. Yeah, I know five and a half yeah. hours. You know, and things like. Or my longest was fifteen. Well, yeah, fifteen. Most hours. of. Most of the time I got was, you know, at United Airlines. So uh, yeah. that's where that comes from. And we'll talk about Anyways, that in a little bit. So that's how I got into flying, but it really was a kind of a fluke. Oh, yeah. But see that, what a great story that is, because as you know, as everybody knows, there's a pilot shortage right now. And there's a lot of people that don't understand there's ways to get your wing. There are ways yeah. to get your wings right now. Okay. UPT was tough for me because I went in there with no other than the screening program, no flying hours whatsoever. Yeah. But I got to fly the airplane I wanted to fly ever since I was a little kid. I'd always yeah. wanted to fly 707s. I dreamt of flying 707s as a young kid, you know, and I got to do it for 24 years, you know? And like, right. you, like you said, when we were talking just a minute ago, it wasn't a job. It really wasn't a job. It was like, I can't believe I get paid to do this sometimes. We're looking around at each other, looking at the Aurora Borealis or something crazy while we're flying around. Oh, yeah. having a great time. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Here you are, you're in your early 20s and you're out running around with some multi-million dollar airplane and or whatever we were doing. Yeah. You know, I started looking back at it, which, you know, we'll get into later down yeah. the road. But yeah. uh, I look back and I go, really, I was that young when I was doing that stuff. I go, holy crap. So you Man. finish at UPT and you go into a fighter lead in program and then right into F4s. The mighty. Yeah, I got in the the class I graduated from uh, F-15s. They weren't new, but they weren't coming down to every single class. And uh, class ahead of me had one eagle. Uh, Our class had none. 
selections were F-15, F-4, and then I don't know what it was, third, I don't even remember. Obviously, no Eagles. And as you remember, at least, at, I guess, I don't know how they do it now, but back then they gave out assignments based on rank and then alphabetically, right? Well, guess what? Second Lieutenant Zettel, I was the last guy to get my assignment. So I'm watching all these other guys get, you know, and there were no Eagles getting assigned. So I'm thinking, well, you know, I, I might be in there. And and I uh, saw a couple guys get some things that weren't so good. I went, ooh, ouch, you know, guys that had uh, been right up there. I'm thinking, well, I'm, there's maybe a hope in hell. Well, they called my name and they said, F4 to Luke. So I go, hey, great, man. Jumped over the bar, rang the bell. I was a happy camper. <laughs> so, yeah, I went to Luke, checked out in the Phantom F4Cs. And then uh, February of 79, uh, you know, had just turned, put on one one lieutenant. Off to Cadet, I went, uh, showed up there in the uh, uh, 18th Tech Fighter Wing and uh, 12th Tech Fighter Squadron uh, flying F-4Ds. The Dirty Dozen. And, uh, oh, by the way, it was it was almost like a welcome to Kadena. Oh, by the way, you're not going to check it out. You're not going to check out in the Eagle that's going to show up here in eight months. I go, eh, it's okay. What the heck? I'm, it's an adventure to me. I didn't know. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's why. Flying at Kadena was probably the best experience of my career and probably mm-hmm. where I learned the most. Okay. So this is your first flying assignment and you're in F4Ds. Are you air to air or air to ground guy? We were air to ground. We had an air to ground mission at Kadena. But we would just like you said, you know, we'd fly over over the, uh, uh, you know, Westpac up to Kunsan quite a bit for, you know, Team Spirits, things like that. Right. Typhoon of Axe, whatever it was. Go down to Clark for Cope Thunders, Combat Sage, those kind of exercises. Aggressors would come up and uh, kick our butt in the <laughs> F4D up at Kadena. So, you know, cross countries, either you go north or you go south. So as a, you know, young lieutenant flying, uh, flying Phantoms, uh, it was actually, it was very good because I got to do a lot of stuff. I know I never would have done had I gone uh, to Europe, which I actually had asked to go to, but uh, they sent me to Kadena instead. And looking back, it's the best thing that happened. Well, and your next assignment too is to Osan, is it not? And and you're flying yeah. Phantoms air to air in the Fiends. Yeah. And the story behind that is I and I knew I was going to have to be, you know, I was going to be leaving after 18 months because one, the, all the F4s were gone or going going away. I wasn't going to transition to the F-15. So I had to make a decision. I'm like, do I want to go back to the States or do I want to go somewhere else? Maybe stay here in PACAF. And of course, I was a single guy and I loved doing what I was doing. Like we just talked about, it's a big adventure. So I thought, well, I'm over here. This is great. How about if I just go to, and I really want to learn more about the air to air stuff because I had met the aggressors. I go, man, it's a great assignment. Plus I had a mentor in the uh, in the 12th squadron, a guy by the name of Pat O'Brien uh, later became, he was major at the time. Kind of took me under his wing and later became, he was a uh, wing commander of Torhone F-16s and ran it again again years ago. But he was early on said, you know what you ought to do? I'm sure he's, he saw some measure of talent in me <laughs> besides a little piss of vinegar. He figured, well, you could probably control that. But he probably saw just enough talent. He said, you know what you ought to do? And he was the first one that said, you ought to become an aggressor, learn this air to air stuff, and then go fly types. And I looked at him. I, mean, I still remember this in the 12th squadron hallway. I looked at him like, you know, like he had a third eye. I go, types, what are you talking about? And he leaned over to me, whispered in my ear. He goes, Migs, they got Migs at Nellis. And he goes, don't tell anybody. <laughs> so I went, I went, what? He says, yeah, but you can't get there from here. So think about it. But great guy. Great guy. Uh, um, anyway, so long story short, I thought, hey, you know, they're starting to harp on me. Hey, you're going to have to find assignment. Do you want to go back stateside? I go, no, I don't want to do that. 
I want to go to, I want to stay in Pack F. I don't go fly Phantoms, but you know what I really want to do? I want to go to Osan, where there's, that was the last air superiority F-4 squadron Air Force. I want to go fly F-40s, learn all about this air-to-air stuff. And then we got a shot at it. I like to be an aggressor. I really wasn't really even serious about the makes because I, I really didn't know anything about it. I was still, yeah. still too new, naive. So the aggressors actually put in a few good words for me when they would go up to Osan. And I think a few of them told the squadron commander up there at the time, they go, hey, we got this lieutenant at Nellis, uh, not at Kadena. Uh, he'd really like to come here. You know, he's a pretty good guy, a lot of piss and vinegar, but, you know, passion's in the right spot. And lo and behold, I flew up there. You know, squadron commander's great. He says, you know what you got to do? Get a couple jets, go up to go up to Osan, go visit the guy. So, you know, they let me do that. I, I flew up to Osan, uh, went in, talked to the squadron commander, Joe Hurd, and told him what I wanted to do. He goes, okay, we'll do it. So, because I uh, still remember the guys at PAC half assignment said, Hickam, because I was already, I was Maverick, Pape Spike, all qualified. They want to send me to Kunsan in F4D. So I go, no, 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 I don't want to go to Kunsan. You don't understand. I want to go to Osan. It took Joe Hurd. And the aggressors actually to make that happen. So, you know, right, right, right place, right time. So that happens. I go up to Osan in uh, September of 1980 mm-hmm. and I spent a year there. And again, great job. Flew my butt off and did some really neat stuff there. And out of there, went to become an aggressor. Uh, but there's another story beyond that that is actually quite funny because about not quite halfway through the assignment, I remember being in like, it uh, must have been the ops area or whatever. And my flight commander comes up to me and he's a weapons officer. I won't mention his name because you'll probably embarrass him. But he comes up to me, he says, hey, Z-Man, uh, I want to I want to know something. We want to put you in to go to weapons school in the F-4. And I'm pretty sure you'll get it. You know, uh, if you do want to do that, hey, we're going to fast track you through the IP course. We'll get you topped off, fast track, and you'll be primed up, ready to go to weapons school, you know, come October thought about for just, I mean, it wasn't even very, very long. And I looked at him and I go, hey, thanks a lot. But, you know, I, I'd rather be, uh, thanks a lot, but I'd rather be an aggressor. And he he looked at me and like, are you shitting me? I'm giving you an opportunity to go to F4 weapon school. You want to be a gomer? I go, yeah, what's wrong with that? I, that's what I want to do. Because I knew if I went to weapon school in the F4 as much as I liked it, I knew that, okay, I'm going to leave there. I'm going to go probably out of web school. I'm going to either go to George or another RTU. And it's going to be another four or five years in the Phantom. And I don't want to do that. I want to be in the air to air. I want to go, you know, fly aggressors and stuff. That night, again, this is way before, you know, we had to go through Audubon and stuff like that. I remember having to get a patch through to Clark. And I called the aggressor commander down there, who luckily I knew. Guy's name was Nels Running, great guy. Uh, had known him. Uh, he was a lieutenant colonel up at uh, Kadena before I had left there. But he was a squadron commander. So I called him up and told him my predicament and told him, hey, here's what I want to do. I might have burned my bridge, but uh, I'd much rather come fly with aggressors at Clark than go to F4 Web School. So he asked me, oh, how much time do you got? So I told him, he goes, okay, we'll take you. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's how I got that assignment. <laughs> so sure enough, he says, I'll call back after night and I'll make it happen. About a week or two weeks later, I get orders in the mail. They're going, okay, you're going to Nellison. Yeah, you're going to go to Nellison, checked out. And uh, Nellison, uh, I guess, of September of uh, 81, showed up at, uh, yeah, showed up at Clark in uh, February, February, March of 82. Showed up at 26, 26 aggressor squadron at Clark in uh, March of 82. Same kind of thing. I thought I'd died, gone to heaven. You know, great assignment, flying all over back half, 
just flying your butt off and another, you know, just got put into just a right flight with a, a couple really highly experienced F5 guys who had been at Nellis before. Two guys named one guy named Clark Peel and the other guy named um, Rooster Smith. And uh, these guys, luckily, they're in my or I was in their flight and I would go on the road with them all the time. Yeah. And I was a puppy aggressor. And these guys, they showed me the ropes. They said, here's how you do it. Here's how you brief. Here's how you debrief. Here's how to eat humble pie, do all the rest, but yada, yada, yada. So thanks to them, an opportunity came along. I happened to be later that year, December, I took some vacation, went back to States, a little holiday vacation, went back to Nellis on the way back home, stopped in at Nellis for several days, see some of my old buddies there in the dresser squatters, because I figure, hey, you know, uh, in, in August, a year from August, in August of 83, I'm gonna, or September, I'm going to have to rotate out of here. So I'll probably just go back to Dallas. I'll be an aggressor there. That'll be good. Well, while I was there, I was in the 65th squatter visiting, talking to some of the guys that I knew there about maybe coming back. And while I'm there, I run into a guy by the name of Jim Day. And Jim had been at Clark. He had been one of our GCI controllers. Well, he had gone back to Nellis months before. Well, he was a GCI controller in the uh, 4477. Now, when I went through the Red Eagle, uh, the Gomer course, aggressors, we had been in brief into Constant Peg. So I knew what Constant Peg's, Peg was, and I knew who the Red Eagles were. But never in my wildest dreams did I even think about, well, first off, how do you know you could apply to him, which you really couldn't apply to be a Red Eagle. You had to be asked. So I was in the hallway and he says, hey, what are you doing here? I said, well, you know, I explained to him. And he looked at me and he says, do you have your class A's with you? I go, as a matter of fact, I do. He says, I said, why? He says, well, believe, believe it or not, your name has come up in the Red Eagles as uh, they're looking to expand and they need some pilots. And your name came up as a possible. I go, I looked at him like, you know, he again, he had a third eye. I looked at him, I go, you're talking to Rob Zettel. You sure you got the right guy? You know? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, no shit. He goes, I go, well, yeah, I got it. He says, okay, tell you what, you can be here tomorrow. I go, I can be. He says, I'll talk to the commander who I didn't know, uh, George Jennon, and I'll I'll let you know tonight. So I get a call later that night. He says, hey, be at the squadron at 4 o'clock, 4.30, whatever it is, that afternoon, next day. So I show up there, and I really didn't know more than maybe a, a couple guys in the Red Eagles. And these guys had been aggressor instructor IPs when I went through. But other than that, I didn't know. I didn't know George Jennon. He was a commander. I didn't know uh buffalo myers who's the ops officer but i come in and i'm in my dress blues i'm the only guy there in dress blues everyone else has got a bag on and it was one of these old trailers they had parked at the north end of nellis not too far from base ops i mean the place is a dive <laughs> but anyway so i walk in you know he's he kind of buffalo i remember kind of waves me in so i come in uh, you know salute smartly and uh, they close the door tiny little office so Buffalo's kind of standing up against the wall. Jen is behind the desk. I introduce myself. He shakes my hand. And we have about a 35, 40 minute interview, as I recollect. You know, obviously, he kind of spells out why I'm there. Am I interested? Obviously, I was. And he kind of goes into the program. Just a few months prior to that, they had had a fatality. Uh, they had lost a MiG-23 and a pilot got killed. Uh, it was real tragic. And, uh, and so he says, hey, you know, we're, we're flying airplanes here, but, you know, they're a little 
a little sketchy at times. You know, we don't have the, the best maintenance. Well, actually, we do have the best maintenance, but it's not an F-16, it's not an F-4, it's not an F-15. So, you know, we do the best we can, but there's inherent risk. Well, I am now 28 years old. I could care less. To me, this is like the opportunity of a lifetime for the biggest adventure ever. So I'm, I, risk was the last thing on my mind. I go, hey, where do I sign up? So anyway, he kind of went through that. He thanked me for my time. I mean, I felt, you know, it was good, I guess, you know, no mustache and this stuff. And But I still remember as I walk up the doors, George Jen, and after he shakes my hand, he kind of says, hey, Z-Man, he says, uh, don't call us, we'll call you. So I, I leave and I'm thinking, <laughs> I go, I go, well, okay, you know, I'm probably not going to get that job, but at least I know who I am. Uh, again, I hope I'm not taking too much time here, but uh, I go back. This to is great stuff. Back. Keep going. I'll, I will listen well, to you as long as you want to talk. <laughs> I go back to Clark and I'm just, you know, I go back to Clark. It's January, February, March, April, May, June comes. I haven't even thought about that assignment. I mean, it was in the back of my mind, but I really had said, no, I'm not going to get it. And I was already starting the process of calling assignments. Okay. Hey, just send me back to Nelson, you know, 65th squad or whatever. And I remember coming, walking back through the door late one morning. I just finished a one V two. I was, I went out against two phantoms from the, I think it was the third squad. It doesn't really matter, but it was just hot, muggy. And I remember walking back in the door and it was so humid outside and get back in the aggressor squad. And I go, man, the Russian air conditioned air was just, it was awesome. So I go, oh, this is great. So I'm, I'm all hot, sweaty, my helmet bags at my side, my parachutes over my back, you know, shoulder. And I remember a guy by the name of Phil Gilbert. He was in the squadron. He was captain at the time. He goes, he was sitting a duty. He was a duty officer. He goes, hey, Z-Man, when you get done with your brief, the DO uh, called. He wants to see you in, your, in his office when you get done. And, of course, you know, we all think it's like having squad car lights behind you. You think, yeah, yeah. what did I do wrong? I do wrong? What did I do wrong? So immediately I'm kind of, yeah. So immediately I'm kind of pissed going, what the f*** did I do? You know? And uh, so he, I'm sure he saw the uh, look in my face and he goes, no, he says, I think this is some good news. I go, Phil, are you fucking with me? And he goes, no, no, no. I'm, I'm serious, man. He's like, I think it has something to do with that assignment that you interviewed for at Nellis. I go, you shit me. And he goes, no, no, I'm serious, man. I go, are you really? And he goes, yeah, I think so. I go, Okay, so I went, you know, hung up my gear, went debrief with the F4 guys, and then I, uh, you know, got myself in order. I was, by that time, then I cooled down. It was probably an hour and a half later. Went over to the DO's office there at Third Tech Fighter Wing. And Clark go in the office, and uh, secretary's there. And I, I tell her who I am, and I'm there to see uh, Colonel Chuck Holden browse. She goes, okay, well, have a seat. He'll, he'll be right with you. I wait there, and I don't know. A few minutes go by, not too many, and she, I hear a little buzz, and, and she goes, okay, Colonel Holden will see you now. So I walk into his office, I close the door, and I'm like, you know, I'm, I salute and say, hey, you know, Captain Zell, here's order. Well, Browse is sitting back in his chair. He's got like almost like almost like a lazy boy, but it's just a reclining <laughs> desk chair, and he's got his feet up, his boots up on his desk. He's in his flight suit, smoking. He's got a cigarette dangling from his, his <laughs> mouth. He's got his Boots up and he's holding a letter, piece of paper. And he says, Z-Man, he kind of kind of half salutes and says, at ease. He goes, Z-Man, how the f- did you get this assignment? <laughs> and, and, and so I go, what assignment is that, sir? 
puts his feet down, almost falls over. And he stands up and he says, of course, he's pulled my leg. He says, hey, congratulations. He, uh, he hands me the letter, which I still have. Yeah. And he says, uh, this is a shit hot assignment. I don't know who you got it, but let me tell you what, they're getting a good one. And then he said, uh, don't fuck it up. So <laughs> a vote of confidence. So yeah. I got the letter and I walked out of there. But that uh, seems to be the return from every act, commander. Don't screw this up. Don't don't embarrass us. So that's how I got notified. So, you know, about two, three months, three months later, I guess I took off for, for Nellis and I reported in the 4477th. And uh, I was there a little over. I got there and I guess it was September of yeah, September of 83, and I left in December of 86. So I was Red Eagle for a little over three years, about three years and four months. While I was there, I amassed not quite as many sorties as Paco did. Paco ended up getting 500, but they're all MiG-21. Mike Scott had had uh, two assignments in Red Eagles. He had uh, he had 500 plus 540, 560, but I ended up with the third guy. So I flew both MiG-21s and MiG-23s. I ended up with 478 sorties, I guess, in MiGs. So wow. 400 and uh, uh, about a little over two years in MiG-21 and about 11 months in the uh, MiG-23. Again, uh, dream come true. I had to pinch myself almost day going, every day going to work thinking, I really get to do this. And of course, that was, you know, this is the height of the Reagan era when the defense dollars were no not a factor. And uh, up there at Tonopah also was... Uh, just across the ramp from us were the uh, 117s, which were just starting to bed down there, which we uh, we all got in brief to the program uh, early on. So I think it was November of 83. They The 117s had just 4450th had just gone operational. And right then we were in brief to the program. So it was it was the perfect place, perfect time. Flew our butt off. I uh, got to fly MiGs. I was an IP in a MiG-21, FCF, MiG-23. Got to fly all the different types we had. So, you know, again, it, it just kept getting better after that. I remember, you know, as I was approaching the, uh, hey, you need to go get another job because we're going to boot you out of here. And uh, probably mid-summer uh, of 86, uh, Paco, who is the uh, Paco Geisler, who I'm sure you've heard of. But he, uh, he stuck his head and he was the operations officer. He says, hey, I got TAC assignments on the line. They're asking, where do you want your F-15 to? You want to go to Eglin or you want to go to Langley? I go, you know, send me to Langley because that'll be one less job I got to do if I have to do a staff tour after that. You know, I don't know why I was uh, thinking like that, but it worked out well. And uh, he goes, really? You want to go to Langley? I go, yeah. Well, again, that worked out to be the best thing. So I go, it was that, I, there, you know, a couple months later, I was in, in the F-15 training down at Luke. I show up at uh, Langley in February of uh, 87 and uh, stayed there for four years in the, in the first wing. And uh, the last two actually uh, a, a sort of attached to the first wing, but actually as a F-15 uh, Stan Val guy on the TAC IG team. Got out, got out right to United Airlines. So I got to fly all that stuff over a course of 14 years active duty. Oh, man. The saying goes, I'd rather be lucky than good. Oh, any day of the week. So a couple of questions for you. Walk, yeah. us, walk us through Gomer School. When you show up. Aggressor School? Aggressor School. Walk us through that syllabus just real quick and, and what you go through to become a Gomer. Because a lot of people... There, I'm sure a lot of my listeners don't realize that there actually was a school for this. It wasn't something that you just went and started doing. Um, I mean, you right. became like the yeah. best, the best instructor yeah. in the world. And yeah, air, we had a, adversary it was, it was, tactics. 
Yeah, it was a formal course at the Nelson. I think uh, they, uh, well, I guess they, well, I don't know what they do now, but back then they had three classes a year. So about basically every four months, there was a, a group of about eight to 12 pilots and probably about six or eight uh, GCI controllers that went through a formal aggressor syllabus. For the pilots, we, for course, first thing you had to do is get checked out in the F-5 because none of us had ever flown F-5s. I mean, the only place the Air Force had F-5s was down at Luke. You know, they had a uh, foreign military sales kind of training thing there that the guys at Luke and uh, I think the 405th wing, they did trains for, uh, I think, Jordanians, I think it, uh, way back when, uh, Iranians, Saudis, that kind of stuff, a lot of foreign military type things. But other than that, the only people that flew F-5s in the Air Force were the aggressors. Of course, they had two two squadrons there at Nellis, the one in the 527th aggressor squad at Alcabari, and then the 26th aggressor squadron at Clark in the, Phil- in the in Philippines. So, but you had to go through there. So, of course, none of us had flown the F-5. First thing was, hey, go through, learn to fly the F-5. There were no no two-seaters, no simulators. So, you know, you go through, I don't know, week, two weeks of, I don't know, it was two weeks of academics on the airplane, systems, that kind of stuff, EPs, that kind of thing, and procedures. But you know, the day comes, you go out. I mean, we had all all been selected to go there. So most of us had come from either F-4 or some F-15s, that sort of thing. So, you know, we had quite a few hours behind us. It wasn't like flying fighters is new to us. Yeah. So you go out and, you know, after about four or five sorties, you take a check ride, you're all checked out. Now you get into, okay, you start with the basics, uh, things that you've already done, but in different airplanes, you start with basic fight maneuvers, 1v1. So you go out with the another IP, uh, aggressor IP uh, in another F-5, and you go 1v1 one against him for X number of sorties. You kind of do a little check ride on that. You go on. All of a sudden, you go to ACM, two aggressors versus one, switching on and off. And finally, you start getting up to 2v2 tactics. You know, you've, and we had some uh, syllabus rides where we'd fight against either an F-15 weapon score or we'd fly it against the 422, F-4s, F-15s, F-16. So there was always that trade-off. So you're fighting against other assets within the, the 57th Fighter Weapons Wing. So it was really good. And, you know, along the way, you also learned the, the way they wanted you to brief and debrief. And of course, not only was the briefing incredibly important, but also, you know, leading the, you're learning the Soviet tactics along the way and also the debrief, which is really the bread and butter of being an aggressor, is uh, how do you bring out the learning points in the debrief and do it in a succinct way that whether you're fighting or flying and training against F-4s, F-15s, F-16s, whatever, that, hey, here are learning points. This, these were the objectives today. These were the two or three different uh, Soviet uh, formations we showed you, tactics, whether it be a high-low pincer, high-low east-west, a trailer, spin, whatever it might have been. And then you show them there. And then, you know, of course, we all had our tape recorders way before VTRs or VCRs and things like that. And then the culmination was the last uh, two weeks, I believe we deployed down to Holloman and we flew against various squadron F-15s there for two weeks. And we went 2v2s, 4v4s. Uh, I don't know if we ever, I don't think we went anything beyond a 4v4. Uh, you or myself as a new aggressor checking out, you're leading these things. You're the student, but you're leading a, a four ship of aggressors against a four ship of F-15s. And now I had done this, you know, flying phantoms, but I'd never done it in, you know, doing Soviet tactics. So that's what, and and I still remember coming back with some of those and, you know, it's it was kind of a steep learning curve because, you know, you kind of get your, your dick knocked in the dirt a couple of times and you go, eh, I still remember Bat- Mike Press. He was the 65th commander. He was the IP on one of those flights. And I remember as we get back and he looks at me and he, 
great guy. And actually, he was a former Red Eagle as well. And he looks at me, he goes, yeah, I think we'll do that one over Z man. <laughs> so, <laughs> sounds good to me. So I go, yeah, no doubt about it, you know, but that's just how it was. It's, uh, and it's, uh, the motto was, is, as we all know, you leave your ego at the door and you take your lumps in a debrief, whether good or bad. That was some great lessons learned. Learning and flying with some of the best guys around. That was good. Also, I forgot to mention that uh, I think I may have touched on it briefly some time ago that part of the syllabus was uh, we did get in brief to the Constant Peg program. I remember uh, being in the 64th Aggressor Squadron main briefing room one afternoon when uh, two pilots from the Red Eagles came in and briefed us. First off, the first the point of order was uh, sign these affidavits. Yeah. You will not divulge what you're about to get into. We didn't, obviously. And then they briefed us on the MiG-21, the MiG-23. And when we came up north, you know, a week later, two weeks later, when it was going to be in the syllabus, uh, this is what you can expect. And uh, back then, the the Red Eagles, the program wasn't as mature as when I got to it. And yeah. the maintenance, while, while it was good, uh, they didn't have as many assets. And sometimes the assets would go down. So I remember going out and I had a rule abbreviated link up with a MiG-21 myself and I think one other aggressor. I think we got to see it. We might have done a couple hard turns, but it wasn't a full-fledged BFM sortie, and that was it. You know, so that was my exposure to the Red Eagles. So that was part of it, but it was a it was a very thorough four-month-long program. Could it have been less? Yeah, they probably could have sandwiched that into three months, but they made it four months. But it was good, and then off you go. You graduate, and I took off, went to Clark, and and then now you know the rest of it is you know kind of like you know get there and. Now you're starting over, not starting over, but now you, now you got to put all that you just learned into, uh, into action. Yeah. Into everyday life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming the Red Eagles had a similar training program where you're learning how to fly the airplanes and then you're learning the tactics too. Correct. Yeah. Well, it, the, the, the good thing is those of us who had been aggressors, you know, that was, wasn't so foreign to us because first off flying the MiG 21 was yeah. Pretty darn close to flying the F-5. So for those of us transitioning from an aggressor role to the Red Eagles, was that was pretty nice because, one, airplanes, like I said, are very, very similar, about the same size, same weight, uh, better performance on the MiG-21, at least the MiG-21 model that we flew, MiG-21 F-13, otherwise known as the Fishbed C. And that was really kind of the lightweight, Spartan, stripped-down model, early one, yeah. probably the best performing of all the, the fish bed models. But so, but coming to that, uh, we made our own dash ones, our own flight manuals up there at Tonopah and the Red Eagles. Uh, basically took, you know, the Soviet manuals that we got from foreign technology division, CIA documents, things like that. And we, we basically had our own people rewrite them into a format, whether it's an Air Force Dash 1 or an ATOPS manual that we recognize as Air Force and Navy Marine Corps pilots. And so we learned from that. But again, there were no two-seaters. There were no simulators. So you would marry up with your IP. My guy was a guy named uh, Mike Roy, Mock Roy. We hung out for about a week, went over systems, went out to the hangar, jumped in an airplane, did touchy-feely all the, all the switches. You know, the day comes when they say, okay, today you're going to do a, an engine start. You're going to do a, a slow-speed taxi, taxi back in. In the afternoon, we're going to do a high-speed taxi. And then tomorrow, we're going to go fly. 
you go through all that and you're going, Hey, this is great. This is what I'm prepared for. And, uh, so the day comes and you do all that and, uh, it's a foreign machine. It's no, you know, literally it's a foreign machine and figuratively as well, uh, because it's nothing like I'd ever flown before. There's no nose gear steering, uh, nose gear steering or the steering is all pneumatic brakes. And you meter the air pressure by a long skinny lever on the uh, foreside of the control stick. So if you want to taxi left, there is no hitting the uh, you know nose gear steering button and push on the left left rudder pedal and you go left. You have to push your left rudder pull, pedal down and now meter through squeezing this lever how much air pressure from this one charged bottle that you have. And uh, how much air pressure to get that thing to be, you know, and you got a castering nose gear to go left. So, you know, guys would come out and laugh their ass off because they look at it and they go, this is, you know, this is funnier than anything. You watch these guys try to make around. Some guys would run out of air pressure by the time they got down to the end of the runway and they have to be towed back. You know, that was really embarrassing. So <laughs> I wanted to make sure that did not happen to me. So the slow speed taxi was, you know, start to, you know, go through all your flows. Aircraft, you know, start up all your flight controls, canopy down, pull the chocks, and I'll let the fun begin. And the crew chiefs will go out there and laugh. They watch this young captain go out and make his way kind of out to the runway. And they go, well, you know, say a sign of the cross and wish you luck, you know, like a drunk sailor. (laughs) Uh, Exactly. It's probably what you look like. So you're waddling down to the end of the runway. And I remember getting down there and then they, then you call the tower and you go, okay, uh, request a slow speed taxi down the runway. No, I, I think on the slow speed taxi, you didn't even do that. I think you just taxi right on back and then you just shut it down, went through your post-flight shutdown procedures and that was it. Went ahead, lunch, debrief, and then came out in the afternoon. Okay, let's do the high speed taxi. Went through the same stuff, but this time when you got to the, out to the end of runway, you actually configured it for takeoff, flaps down, did all your pre-flight, your pre-takeoff checklist, call the tower, ask for clearance for high speed taxi. They clear you out. Of course, there wasn't a whole lot of traffic, but you looked on file anyway, and now you taxi out. You're ready. You're full, ready to go for it. You get on runway. Everything's set up. You go, okay, here we go. So you run the airplane up, no power, holding that uh, pneumatic lever, and you can hear you can hear the brakes creaking. Okay, guess not, but you got a lot of pressure there, and all of a sudden, you let go. And then they actually did have you say, okay, high speed. Put it in the full blower right now. You uh, depress the uh, detent. Uh, there's a throttle stop lever right in front of the throttle. You depress it and allows the thing go from mill into afterburner. And you want to go full afterburner. You can hear it. You can feel it and hear it kick in. And you did that. You didn't do it for long because you, you're accelerating so fast. I think he went to about 100 knots. And they go, okay, pull it out. So pull out, yeah. go back to idle, pop the speed brake. Or not speed brake, but uh, put the speed brakes out and pop the drag chute. Drag chute comes up, you fold the tug, you go, hey, great, now see if you can taxi it back before losing all your, your pneumatic pressure, drop your drag chute on the infield. Now make it all the way back in and then shut it down to the same place you started from before you run out of any air pressure. <laughs> so that's that's the introduction to flying MiG-21s. MiG-23 was a piece of cake because you actually had some hydraulic nose gear steering, but the MiG-21 was... It took you a while to get used to that. but uh, So that's how you start off. And then the next day, let's say, okay, Next day is going to be your initial flight. Take off. Let's go. That was great. This is awesome. So describe your first flight in a MiG-21. What That must have been thrilling. Yeah. Uh, and here, the cool thing about up at Tonopah that you have, and this will all be in the book, the first flight in a MiG is like, unlike, I almost can't describe other than to say that 
It's unlike any experience I've had in any other airplane ever, only because no Sims, even more, much more so than even the F5. F5, it just was just not that foreign. Yeah. This thing was full of gauges, everything, just about every gauge in it is still in Cyrillic. Things are labeled in Cyrillic, expect you know, battery switch, a few of the other ones you, you knew. Uh, we had an, uh, a US altimeter, airspeed indicator, radio head, and a transponder. Everything else was stock Soviet. Oh, so fuel was in liters. <laughs> The uh, the uh, oil pressures, everything else is in uh, cubic uh, centigrams and things. You know, it's just stuff. It's just goofy stuff, but it's all relative. Hey, if it's in the green, it's in the green, right? So it's all you care about. <laughs> hey, so there you go. But you take off and you taxi out the runway. And of course, like I mentioned earlier, we, we didn't have any two-seaters. People say, well, well who chased you? Well, we had T-38s that were dedicated, assigned to us in the Red yeah. Eagles. Yeah, that we use. And so Mike Roy, Mock, he got out and he let out to the end of the runway. You know, I did all my stuff and he's in the T-38 next to me and he you know, looks at me and I say to give him the thumbs up, head nod, you know, my canopy's down, I'm ready to go. And so he calls for uh, clearance for the tower. We get clear in position and and it's pretty brief. He's going to take off first. What he does, so I'm sitting there in the takeoff position, ready to go. Flaps are down. Everything's ready. Well, he takes off in the T-38 in front of me. And what he's going to do is take off, get to the end of the runway, full afterburner. He's going to pull up in a tight close to downwind, clean up, flaps up, gear up, yeah. accelerate 250 knots. And I see him coming 180 out from me. And he goes, okay. And his call sign, I think at the time was, I think, MIG, I don't know, MIG-11, doesn't really matter. Yeah. But he says, MIG-11's ready. So I said, okay, I'm ready. He said, okay, wind it up. Let me know when you're ready. So just like I did yesterday for the high speed, I'll run the thing up, look over the gauges, make sure, okay, this is for all the marbles here. I'll look over everything. Engines are good. Creating things. Re I said, okay, brake release. I go release some brakes now and put it in the afterburner just like I did. I'm not paying any attention to Mach, uh, but you know he's doing this descending uh, 180 yeah, degree turn yeah. to come up beam me and pick me up as I'm breaking ground. So, and this thing's just taking off like a banshee. I mean, as soon as that thing goes in the afterburner, it's cooking. The thing that comes to my mind is, man, this rocket is lit and I'm just <laughs> about 135, 140 knots. You just pull back, nose comes up. It's real light now. There's no radar in the nose in the fish bed sea. Yeah. And the thing comes out and you just just, you know, just keep it there, just like you would in F5. A couple seconds later, you feel the airplane just lift, and they go, okay, gear up, little boy, later flaps up, and you hear all these funny sounds that you've never heard before, thunk, clank, boom, you put the gear back to <laughs> neutral position, and uh, you climb out. I mean, the thing is just going like a rape tape, and uh, you accelerate. The thing is accelerate to 350 knots, and then just and just keep 350 knots in the climb. So I'm I'm going up at about 15, 20 degrees nose high climb, climb out 350, and the idea is don't come out of afterburner till about 12,000 feet MSL. So that's about uh, 12,000. It's about 7,000 AGL. And I'm thinking, that's kind of high, isn't it? Well, the idea is 12,500 MSL is, a, is really is low key for the MiG-21 in a flame-out oh, pattern. Got it. So the idea is if you were to be the unfortunate one to lose an engine when you come out of afterburner, ideally, the thought would you could actually return to the airfield, do the impossible turn, and land back on runway you just took off from. So, <laughs> but 
they they reassured me that it never happened to anybody. But so anyway, kept it an afterburner through there, came out, no big deal. Mock in the meantime had closed come underneath me. Of course, I didn't see him, but he said, hey, you're clean and dry. And that's the whole purpose of him joining yeah, up is yeah. for him to make sure there's nothing, no fuel, no oil, no hydraulic streaming, all your gear doors, flaps are up. You're good to go. We're not going to tear any panels off the MIG. Okay, press on. Let's change over to uh, bandit control. And then we're going to go out to range 71 and you're going to learn how to you know, make, uh, operate and handle the MIG-21. So that was the takeoff. That was great. <laughs> How long did that sortie last? Didn't last real too long. I was on area doing, you know, hard turns, uh, pitch attitudes, things like that. And we weren't out there long, maybe 10, no more than 15 minutes. And I'm I'm already RTB, uh, the total sortie. And then, of course, we come back to come back to high key. The initial, you know, return to the field is not to just a normal pattern, but the high key. So you could practice, hey, you lost an engine. Here you are. Way way up high above the field, and here's how you and, get down. And, uh, and here's how you get down if you don't have an engine. So I think it came back about fifteen thousand feet a, you know, MSL or AGL, and we were way up there. Anyway, high, and you come down and did low approach, came back around for a close to a normal full stop landing, whatever normal was. It was the first time I ever did one, and put it on the ground and uh, taxied in. Still had you know pressurization in my uh, my pneumatic tank and made it back, and that was it. <laughs> the whole thing, I think the whole sortie lasted, wasn't more, I know it wasn't more than 0.5. Oh, man. Yeah. Now, everybody that talks about the acceleration of the MiG-23. Talk about that for a moment, what that must have been like. You know, first flying it, taking off, going down the runway, and it, again, getting mm. up. I know that one of the demos you guys did was you'd like get up next to a, a fighter and plug in the burner and, and watch you walk away. Talk about that for just a moment. Yeah, the 23 was, uh, well, I'll start off by saying of all the fighters I've flown and, you know, obviously I've gone through, I flew a lot of different ones. Uh, MiG-23 was by far the fastest airplane I ever flew. But I'll also say that was about the only thing it did well. Um, <laughs> the acceleration was pretty phenomenal. We would do, like you said, a, in a, a performance uh, profile we would do an acceleration demo and we did it with whether it's f-16 f-15 f-4 111 uh, tomcat hornet and yeah. nothing i think the only one that really stayed with us and maybe even accelerated for a short uh, short uh, distance was the uh big mouth f f-16 f wow you know with, with the, the G uh, motors yeah uh, i think that was the only one that was fast fast sob but top end on that thing was just incredible I had it on the deck, and this is a MiG twenty MiG twenty three MS, so that would have been a Flogger E model, which was the export air to air variant, which is a lot faster than the uh, MiG twenty three Bravo November, which was the uh, uh, Flogger F uh -huh. uh, air to ground, a lot, lot faster, you know, uh, appreciably faster. Top end, the I believe the placard limit of the MiG twenty three up at altitude was. 2.35, I believe, Mach. Oh, and I, I flew it right up to the limit, uh, straight and level, 40,000 feet. Uh, 1G level flight, not bunting over at zero G, seeing what I could get a 1G level flight, and it was still accelerating. So at that, approaching wow. that limit, I pulled it back. Uh, it would it would have gone faster, but I go, you know what? Man, it's probably fast enough. Yeah. On the deck, I had it probably about, uh, 
I wasn't on the deck, on the deck, but maybe 200 feet AGL. So yeah. total pause about 55, 5,600 feet. So kind of like Denver. Yeah. A little higher in Denver. You know, so I probably had uh, MSL. I was probably maybe 56, 5,700 feet, you know, 200 feet AGL. I had it one day, a uh, full, you know, wing swept back 72 degrees, 830 knots. And it was still oh, going. Jeez. It would go fast. And I'll tell you a real quick story. This is uh, to give you some an example of the MiG-23 acceleration compared to the MiG-21, which in its own right was a really, really good accelerator. And yeah. this is where I, I, I tell guys when they want to hear about the MiG-21 versus the F-5, they go, well, how were they? Were they, you know, what was which was better? And I said, well, the MiG-21, Again, our model, Fishbed C, when it came to acceleration, top end speed was just a lot faster than F5E. F5, I may have seen 1.2, maybe, maybe 1.3. Yeah. Yeah. And that's going downhill. The F MiG 21, that's a no kidding. That was 1.5, 1.6. That was fast airplane. And it would just flat out run away from an F5. Yeah. One afternoon, I was flying with a guy by the name of Dave Bland Blazo. He was a MiG-23. We are doing a uh, an exercise. We are trying to intercept some 111s. Well, we didn't find them, but our other partners that were uh, capping to the north-northwest in the uh, Nellis Ranges, they actually saw the 111s on the way out. So they gave us a you know, tally-ho, bogey-dope, and so we snapped over there. So I'm on Dave Bland's wing. He's in a MiG-23 uh, uh, air-to-air model, MS. So I'm on his wing in a MiG-21. And as soon as he hears that, he puts the uh, the flogger in a hard left-hand turn. Well, as hard as the flogger yeah. can go. I'm on the outside of his wing. I'm on his right wing and kind of sucked back in a Gomer uh, pair patrol formation. Yeah. And uh, we, we just put some wings back to 72 and just, you know, it starts heading northwest. I'm in full afterburner. He's in full afterburner. And he just flat ass walks, walks away, away from you. I got the 1.3. I couldn't even see him. I go, forget it. I just pulled it out. I go, you know, we have a term in, in sailing where he horizoned me. He was yeah. gone. You couldn't even see him. And then later on, I, I asked him, how far were you going? He said, well, he never did see the MiG-23 or the, the 111s. Uh, he said he looked down. He had 860 knots on the airplane. Oh, jeez. It was fast. But that's all it could do. It, could, it couldn't. Uh, it's the only airplane I ever flew in my whole career. I never gunned anybody in. I came close one time, one time. Really? It, only because if you could see the MiG-23, you could, even if you're out of energy ideas, you could probably defeat it just by, because it just couldn't roll very well, especially if you started getting slow, because yeah. most people, many people may not know, but the the one level, or the one level, the MiG-23 didn't have ailerons, it had spoilers. So when you got the flaps, you know, the, you know to roll the airplane, either had, you know, spoilers on top, of the airplane and it had differential stabilator, but you didn't have ailerons to really help out with the roll rate. So yeah. if you started getting slow, even in the high speed regime, if you're at 72 degrees, all you had is differential stabilator. That's all you had to roll you. If you started getting any kind of AOA, it was pretty sluggish, you know, or you could, you blend in some rudder, but anybody that would roll out of plane with you, yeah, they, they could defeat you. So it was tough, but great opportunity. Not that I didn't try. <laughs> give it the good old college try did uh, they have mig 17s when you were there also or just 21s and 23s uh we were only flying mig 21s and 23s okay. there was actually physically there was one mig 17 still in the hangar when i first arrived yeah. and i wasn't there for too long they had stopped flying them 
Oh, I think about a year before I got there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, a long time ago, you mentioned to me that you get to the 94th, the hat in the ring. And mm-hmm. one of your first deployments is back to Nellis fighting your old bros at Tonopah. If oh, yeah. I remember this story. Hey, right. you, you, get, you got a good memory. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go ahead and tell um, everybody that. It story. was. Because this was funny. Was, this is a great story. As luck would have it, the 94th uh, was, we were tasked. And at the time, we did not we did not know that the Red Eagles were about to be closed down. Red Eagles shut down. I believe their last sorties were in, I want to say it was like April, early April, like April 6th or something like that. First week in April, I believe, of 88. We were tasked to go out there, I think, the very last week in February, maybe early March um, of that same year. And we were in the 94th, the 94th uh, Hat and Ring Gang at, at from Langley. Uh, we were going to go out there and do one week of uh, Red Eagles, fly against Red Eagles for one week, and then also do stay for a second week, do some uh, a syllabus support work for the aggressors who had a class going through at the time. So we're going to go out there and fight against the aggressors. And of course, myself being a, a former Red Eagle, Squire Commander said, well, AZ hey, man, you're, you're going to be the project officer. You set all that up and we'll get things going. So about a four to five days before we're getting ready to leave, I get a call from a guy by the name of uh, Larry Shyshervanik, uh, who was running the Red Eagle and some other programs up at TAC headquarters. And he knew me from, uh, he was in the Red Eagles when I had first showed up. In fact, he was my flight commander. He called me up because he knew I was a project officer. He goes, hey, Z, man, how would you guys like a, a second week straight of flying against uh so we're going to go out there. So we're going to, the idea is we're going to deploy out on a Sunday, but Friday before we go out, we're going to have our standard. Okay. For everybody that's going to deploy out there, kind of have a their normal deployment brief. Here's when to show up, all the rest of the stuff. Here's who's going to fly out, tanker, escort, yada, yada, yada. I asked the boss, Jumbo Ray, who's the deputy commander of operations for the first wing. I said, Hey, we're going to go out there and fight against the Red Eagles for two weeks. They all know what I did. I go, How about if I give them? the Red Eagle brief before they go. This wasn't sanctioned. These guys hadn't been briefed into the program, uh, but pretty much everyone there, which is actually kind of interesting. Everyone in the squadron knew I had flown MiGs. Not a single one ever asked me about it. They never even mentioned it. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's how well kept the secret. And I, I won't say that everyone in the squadron knew that I had done it, but I think a probably a good number did yeah. anyway. So the squad commander, the DO said, absolutely easy, man. We'll make sure we secure the room. Only need to know only those people flying. So basically I gave up, I went up and for about an hour, gave my dog and pony, just like I did for three years in the red Eagle. So I gave him the MiG 21 brief, gave him the MiG 23 brief complete with sticks, sticks on a, you know, yeah, yeah. airplanes on a stick. And I told him, okay, guys, now I act surprised when you show up there on Monday afternoon, in the threat training facility out there at Nellis, they're going to inbrief you. And two guys that kind of look like me are going to, with Red Eagle patches, are going to give you this same brief. You've already had it. You've had it for me because I've been there. I've done that. So I gave them all the tricks. I told them, you guys can do this. This, this is not a big 10-foot bear. You yeah. guys can kick their ass if you do it right. Listen to what I'm telling you. So get fast forward. We go out there and, you know, hey, I, I've been out there and, 
obviously I've flown the Megs, but I was not going to take any Eagle sort of except for one. I, I, I told the guys, listen, I want all the lieutenants, first time Eagle guys. I want yeah. you guys out there fighting against Megs. You know, I did jump in the backseat a couple of times with the, in a, in a tub and watch guys, but these guys kicked ass. They were doing great. In fact, <laughs> some of these young, some of these young, I mean, this is no shit. Sluggle, some of these guys are doing better than F-15 weapon school students. I mean, that's no shit. Wow. And it's interesting because the Red Eagles weren't used to getting their ass kicked. Now, it didn't happen every time, but yeah. that soon, that often. I mean, yeah. guys are going, taking it to them. I mean, you could just see the joy. These young lieutenants would come in, young captains, and their eyes would just be lit up. And they yeah. would come in and they would yell, I gunned his brains out. <laughs> and uh, so it was just great. The rest of the story is I did have, I did take one sortie. And yeah. that was toward the end of the second week. Yeah. And and I went out and flew. We started off, you know, 2v2. Turned out it was uh, uh, MiG-23, MiG-21. You know, we mortared both guys prior to the merge. Good, good, you know, good sort, 20 miles, yeah. that kind of thing. And then, uh, but the idea is I wanted to go fight against MiG-21. I paired up and, you know, we switched frequencies. I, I paired up with the the, uh, the Red Eagles in range 71. I was vectored toward him. I joined up on him. He was now the IP. So I got his frequency, yada, yada, yada. He says, okay, what do you want? Uh, I've got time for one engagement, maybe a little bit more. He says, what do you want to be? You want to be offensive or defensive? Well, no self-respecting former Red Eagle is going to say, yeah, I'll be I'll be offensive in my clean F-15 for my, my one and only engagement. <laughs> so I said, no, I'll, I'll, I'll go defensive. So he sets up, he said, okay, so the standard, you know, he's set up on a standard perch profile. You're, yeah. you know, I'm out there 9,000 feet in a left-hand turn at 400 knots. He's, you know, 9,000 feet back, you know, left seven, eight o'clock, you know, we're both. He says, okay, call, we're ready. I go, okay, we're ready, ready, you know. And so he closes in 9,000 feet, I guess, based on GCI's call. He goes, okay, fights on, fights on. So. I won't run you through the excruciating pain of the whole engagement, but, uh, you know, I knew that if I plumbered this, and I got gunned. Being you wouldn't hear evil, the end of it. You wouldn't hear the I end of never, this. I would get a, I'd get a new call sign, and I would never be able to, uh, yeah. you know, say I was Red Eagle again. Luckily, uh, I wouldn't say luckily. I mean, I had skills. I knew exactly what he yeah. could, could not do. One and a half turns, I gunned him. It was, uh, I almost blew it because on a reposition, he took the little son of a bitch went right to the sun, just like we taught him to do. <laughs> and he took it right in. I couldn't, and here I am. I mean. I'm looking at it as I pitch back after, you know, I force his nose off, I unload, I get back to what I'm thinking is close to, I don't know, 350, 400 knots because I had blood a lot in that, that, you know, eight and a half, nine G turn for the first eight, 10, 15 seconds. I unloaded, call it coming on back. And as I'm coming back, lift vector on, I go, son of a gun, he is right in the sun. I'm thinking, but I know exactly where he is. Yeah. Uh, so I'm thinking, okay, I know where you are. I know what you can do. So I go, eh, the Eagles got some nice fancy dancy gizmos on here and you help me find you. So I just do uh, two taps for it on the uh, control stick and um, two thumbs up on the uh, CDU and our uh, uh, cursor control thing, put it in vertical scan, pick him up, get a tally ho on him, rolling behind him as he's pitching down, down, trying to get his knots back. And I rolled him behind him and uh, actually had a throttle back and, you know, gunned him too, too, not too much long after that, but uh, I was close. Could have plumbered it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it worked out well. But uh, it was, uh, but you know, hey, then that, that was the thing too. Is you know, I, at that time, I had been in the F-15 for almost exactly a year. 
Uh-huh. You know, I'd been an IP in it, a uh, flight lead IP, and then uh, uh-huh. Mission Commander on it for maybe four months, three, four uh-huh. months, not long. But, you know, I've been in it, and, you know, it's like anything. I'll I'll be the first to say the Eagle, while it was a pleasure to fly, to really employ it well, does take you a while. It took yeah. me a while. It did give you all those. It was still Cadillac to fly. It was great. Uh, it was great. Anyway, it was. But that, the strange enough, that was the, I think, the last F-15, F-15 deployment against the Red Eagles before they shut down. Four weeks later, they were gone. Yeah, forever. So, What an incredible teaching tool that was. You know, Rob? Oh, was. What an incredible teaching tool that was for guys to actually go, oh, this is what this looks like. I talked to Rico Rodriguez and yeah, yeah. Cluzo showed up at Kadena right after the first Gulf War. Yep. And all of those guys Great had been guys. through that. All of those guys had been through yep. that. Yeah. And what an incredible training tool to be able to go up against the airplanes you were going to face. And Rico got a MiG-23, if I remember right. Yep. But not only that, the debriefing method that you guys use there is like world-class, world-class. And I wish that more companies used that kind of philosophy. And I worked mm-hmm. for a company that didn't. And it was sad. It was sad because not only did they debrief their wins and their losses, but when I left, I asked her, the gal in HR says, don't you want to hear what I think of the company and, and where you guys can improve? No, not really. And I said, I'm going to mm-hmm. tell you, any- I'm going to tell you anyway. I'm going to tell you anyway. And I think that was one of the things that I learned too. Setting up our tanker weapon school was the power of the debrief. Oh, yeah. And yeah. what you learn from that and what you can learn from that if you'll leave your ego at the door and go in and go, I'm here to learn from guys who oh, yeah. know a lot. Yeah. And that was, you're right. Yeah. When we had debriefs and that was, you know, whether it's in the Gomers or in the Red Eagles, the the beauty of, I mean, it was really a great program, but I think that, you know, doesn't need to be said anymore. It was a great program, but the real benefit came from what you exactly said as a debrief. And the fact that we were able to go up the Tonepah every morning, fly our MIG sorties, sometimes two, three of them, fly them back that afternoon and then meet with those same guys, whether it was an F-4, F-15, F-16 weapon school guy, meet them face-to-face. They come over to us and we get in and we say, hey, here's what you did well. Here's what you didn't do good. But, you know, always leave them with, hey, this is something, this is what you did really well. This is what you can prove on. But, hey, this guy, he's not not a a 10-foot bear. He's, you know, this Uh is all he's got. You know, he doesn't have much more than that. Hey, I got to ask you about a famous picture. There is a picture mm. back many years ago. It showed a 16 and a flanker over Nellis. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about it, but it's you can see these guys are driving through the deserts of Nellis and they see something happen overhead. One guy happened to have his camera and takes it out and it shows a 16 and a flanker going like this. So oh, yeah? you know, who knows if this program has reinvented itself or not. But uh, I don't know. I, I would I would hope it has. I would think with the access to, you know, aircraft worldwide uh, yeah. yeah there's no doubt i mean people have you know own them privately so there's no doubt that yeah. the air force probably got their hands on a few yeah and now you're working for agile defense kind of doing the same thing aren't you talk to us a little well, bit about what agile defense is and what and 
and what you're trying to do? Oh, we're working on Agile Defense. Actually, we're getting ready to merge into one a big uh, conglomerate uh, by called by the Errol Group. But the listening audience, uh, basically what we're doing, what they brought me on board for several years ago was to head up the Adversary Air Program. You know, some of our uh, the other uh, competitors of ours that are in the industry, like uh, Top Aces, uh, Draken, ATAC, people like that, uh, TAC Air, you know, basically contract adversary air for the Air Force and the Navy. So we've been working on that for several years. I can't say it's been all all good. We, it's, uh, you know, I've told the guys years ago, if you want to go out and do this, uh, uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, the pony up the the entry fee is is pretty damn steep. You want to go yeah. and buy some fourth generation fighters, and uh, you know you, having the money is one thing. Being able to get access to them is is quite another. So it's a long, slow process. Uh, worked a lot of uh, programs that turn out to be dead ends. Worked with some foreign countries where it's it's all good, sounds good until it, until it isn't. Looking at different fourth generation fighters uh, that are were not built here in the U.S flown by you know some of our our allies but uh anyway we're working at doing that it's pretty exciting stuff yeah. and you're getting to do the same thing that they did when you're at the aggressors and with the red eagle guys man yeah well we'll we'll see what happens uh it keeps, excuse keeps me. me out of the pub at least a little bit you know <laughs> hey now you go into obviously the airline world i know that's very different from you know being a fighter guy you know what was that transition like and talk to us a little bit about the airplanes you flew with United, both domestically and internationally. Well, it was, you know, uh, without being said, a huge difference. Uh, now you're hauling people and things like that, and it's not really mission dictated. You're providing the service. So it took a while to kind of put fangs back in my my mouth, just learn to sit on my hands a little bit, thinking, hey, come on, we need to get going, and realize that I guess the operation is going to get going, was going, and, uh, you know, you, we have a whole different set of rules to live by and work by and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So <laughs> you had to learn to throttle back quite a bit. I guess if I learned something that I probably could carry through, whether it's Air Force career and then later on to flying airlines, is uh, there's no substitute for hard work. My mom always said, hey, if the job's worth doing, it's worth doing right. I, I flew DC-10s. Uh, actually, I was really a second officer on that, a flight engineer. But then I, you know, when we first got the Airbus at uh, United, I was on initial cadre to fly the A320. Checked out in that. And that was a great airplane. I enjoyed that. You know, I got a window seat. That was kind of fun flying side stick and all that. And I was on that about two and a half years. Then I got into the Boeing 777 as a first officer when we first got it, actually about uh, just under a year after we we started flying at United. Yeah. And I flew it for 10 years in the right seat. And then I took an uh, upgrade to captain in the uh, 767-757. And I uh, did that for my final 13 years at United. The last uh, 11 of those years as a Czech airman on the 7-6 program. And then the uh, last four of those years uh, as the uh, line standards manager for yeah. the 7-6 uh, fleet at United were... Had uh, roughly a hundred, a little over a hundred Czech airmen working for me in that program. And that was an opportunity to, you know, bring a lot of lessons I learned. Strangely enough, you think, well, how do you, how do you bring what you learned in the Air Force to that? Well, things like motivation, discipline, standardization, all those things come to bear. Like I said, uh, you you mentioned debriefing and that was yeah. one thing that we're always big on is, hey, you know, it's, you know, we're not going to do it in a, uh, eight by 12 room. It might be uh, up to next to a, a bar or something like that. But uh, the debrief is a critically invaluable portion or part of learning. 
you know, whether it's airline or or uh, fly fighters or tankers for that matter. So that was always good, but uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was it was a, also a way to give back and uh, you know again teaching whether I was teaching as a as an, an aggressor as a Red Eagle as an F fifteen IP or whatever or now as a chick airman on seven six fleet and you know whether taking people you know domestically or you know most of the stuff I did in the last bunch of years is all international. About 15 to 20 of those flights were actually going into Moscow, which was kind of interesting, which uh, as a former Red Eagle, as a former Red Eagle in Gomer, I didn't think I'd ever see myself in Red Square, but there I was. That must have been surreal, Rob. It it really was. Here, I used to teach these guys tactics, and now I'm standing in their capital. Here you are, Red Square, looking at St. Basil and, you know, everything else, the Kremlin Wall. And uh, yeah, it was wild. But uh, back then, it was actually, that was... That was actually 10 years ago. That was actually, it was, it was quite enjoyable. We did that for about eh, two, two and a half years at United. We kind of pulled out of that market, but taking captains in and out of, uh, out of Moscow, quite fun. Uh, and now you're still flying privately, aren't you? Tell us about uh, the airplane that yeah. you fly around in now. Yeah, I know I shared some pictures with you, but for yeah. the listening audience, yeah, I partner and I in, in the air cam, we, well, we built an air cam, uh, started about four years ago, a little off, a little over four years ago. Uh, air cam for those of the uninitiated are, is a, a twin engine aircraft. Uh, it's got twin Rotex, uh, 912 engines on it. And this one is built. We put it on floats. It took us just under two years to build it. I flew the first solo and then the initial, you know, FAA required 40 hour fly off on it. I think the first flight we did was May of 25, uh, yeah, May 15th of 2020. Uh-huh. So kind of right in the heart of COVID era. Yeah. We've been flying ever since, uh, took it to Oshkosh the last two years. Just been a dream. In fact, uh, Sluggle, you need to come down to Florida and go fly with that thing. You're just going to put you in the front seat. You're just going to love it. You're going to, oh man, I, I caution I you though. What, once you fly it, it it's, it's dangerous because you're going to want to buy one. So you get a better <laughs> square that away with, uh, with your wife. But, yeah. yeah. I, I don't think she wants me around airplanes because she knows. Uh, yeah. I, I was one of those guys that went cold turkey when I left. I've been in simulators, things like that. But other than that, do I miss it? Oh, Absolutely. But I went cold turkey when I left and uh, I really enjoy this writing thing. And I really enjoy this podcast thing, though, a lot. Well, you're doing you're doing great at it. So please, uh, please keep at it because uh, there are a lot of people that are benefiting for the effort and the uh, blood, sweat and tears sometimes that you're putting into it because it's great. It's because of the stories. You know, these veterans are telling these stories. And I had one vet that told me, you know what, Sluggo? I've not told anybody that story. I finally got it off my chest. Thanks. Hmm. After we were yeah. done recording. And I and I hadn't thought about that aspect of it. You know, we've had some incredible guests on having, you know, Royce Williams and the two Hilo guys from Anaconda. And oh yeah. my gosh. And they're incredible stories. Okay. And yours, you know, hmm. being in the adversary and flying MIGs. And it's just, it's been a lot of fun meeting the people. But you know what, too, Rob? It's been a lot of fun doing the prints too. And oh, yeah, these that's great. Mm-hmm. For every episode, I've been able to draw these things out. I'm having to do helicopters right now, Z-Man, and I don't know anything about helicopters, so I'm having to do a lot of research. Mm-hmm. But that's been the another aspect of this that I've really enjoyed is not just meeting people like you and hearing your stories, but seeing the MiG-21 and MiG-23 on the back of your hangar with the Red Eagle patch next to it has been... Uh, yeah, I don't that's think there's probably not another hanger in the world that's got that on. 
No, I can guarantee you there's not, uh, having mm-hmm. done this for a while. But uh, hey, guess what we just found out, man? We put two, three AFSOC patches about six inches on the back of my buddy's truck. Awesome. They have not faded. They have not come off. And they're just perfect. Our printer put something on his backboard like two years ago for his kid's uh, basketball goal just to test it. We're finding out that, hey, these things will actually last out in the water and the in, in the weather. Matter of fact, my buddy, my wow. FSOC buddy, washes his truck like once a week and they're still That's awesome. There, so. Yeah, you got some good materials and prints that you're using for that. Yeah, I am truly blessed because of the printer that I have that does this stuff for Mm -hmm. us. And like I said, this guy says, hey, I'm going to put these on my truck. And I went, I don't know if these are good outside. I guess we'll test and see what happens, you know. And he's had them on there for eight, nine months now. No fading. They haven't come off. And they're all all standing up. And uh, another F-15 guy by the name of uh, Joe Shinnick, Shoeless, put them on his boat. And they're still on his boat, too. So That's great. there you have it, man. There you have it. Well, brother, we've been going for an hour and a half now. It's yeah, we, been, oh, gosh. It has been fantastic having you on because this is truly a story of education and training, but it's also an incredible story of how we train in the mm-hmm. United States Air Force. And you have been truly the tip of the spear of this adversary training stuff, getting in it at you know, very early on in your career too. So Rob, yeah, I was, I was very fortunate. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Oh, aren't we all, all of us are fortunate. They got to fly in the air force like that. So Rob Zettel, Z-Man, thanks for being on the lessons from the cockpit show with us today and sharing uh, your background with us and all of your expertise on adversary tactics and flying with the, uh, as a Gomer and the red Eagles. Hey, you're welcome. Sluggle. My pleasure. Anytime. Rob Zettel will soon publish a book called American MIG Pilot, which will be out sometime next year. There are two really good books out right now about the famous Red Eagles, and you can link to those in the show notes below. I also have links to the MiG-21 and MiG-23 that Rob Zettel flew and the Red Eagles that you can buy from Wallpilot, custom aviation art for the walls of your home, office, or hangar. These are available in four, six, and eight foot graphics that you can peel off and stick on your wall or a lot of people just frame them. This and previous episodes of the Lessons from the Cockpit Show can be found on my website, marcusera.com, under the podcast pull-down box. On our show next week, we're going to talk with a Navy H3 Sea King pilot. And man, wait till you hear some of the things that they designed this helicopter to do. And a lot of nations flew this, and it saw a lot of action over Vietnam picking up downed pilots. Folks, I really appreciate you tuning in and listening to the Lessons from the Cockpit Show. We are continuing to grow and grow and grow. You can find some of my shorts on TikTok and YouTube now talking about some of these fun aviation facts. Appreciate you being here with us today, downloading and listening to these. Please share with your friends and your family and your loved ones. And we'll talk to you next week on the Lessons from the Cockpit Show.